You're listening to Creative Confidential with Brian Tuck. Brian is an attorney who represents startups, nonprofits, arts organizations, and people who work in the creative industries. As an arts entrepreneur, Brian is the founder and CEO of Performing Arts Live, a Pennsylvania nonprofit corporation dedicated to creating and supporting live performance opportunities for jazz and electronic artists. Its flagship program is the Allentown Jazz Fest. Brian is a TEDx speaker, a Grammy voter, and jazz musician. Creative Confidential begins now. Today's guest is West Coast based, uh, a man that wears many hats. He's an attorney, a musician, a screenwriter, a film producer. Uh, I'm uh, talking to the one and only Lee Ridnicki today. Lee? Hello. Thank you for having me. Thanks for thanks for joining us. I really, uh, really appreciate it. In some weird, disconnected way, we've had some commonality in our past. I know uh, we were both at Westchester University, but not at the same time. Um, I was a couple of years after you, I think. Ah, uh, right. You were what year did you graduate undergrad? Unfortunately, I never graduated from Westchester. Um, I started there in the fall of '84, and I was a drummer, you know, and that was my mission. And I was on a mission to get out to the West Coast and march in the vanguard. So I did my first two years um, at Westchester and had the best college experience ever. You know, marched with all the drum corps legends and the marching band and all that. But um, yeah, I ended up at San Jose State um, out on the West Coast and ended up graduating with a music degree out here. Right. And I was, yeah, so you were there 80, what, 84, 85, 86? Yeah, right after the, let's see, the summer of 86, I marched cadets and then I came back for the fall and then I was gone. I auditioned in October for Vanguard. I got in and then I was January 87. I moved out and then I graduated and then I lost a bunch of credits. And, you know, if you've ever transferred schools, you know how that goes. Sure. It's, it's not quite starting over, but it was close. And I ended up graduating with an undergrad in 91, which uh, it was fine. I was teaching Vanguard for most of those years. So, And we'll, and there's a lot of, there will be a lot of drum corps references in this episode. So uh, bear with us. But our listeners that are in this uh, community, um, the drum corps community, that is, are, are going to be all about this episode. So, um, but you, you spent, didn't you spend a season at Crossman or did I imagine that? Um, no. So here's my how I got started in entertainment, I guess. Um, I grew up in Mountaintop, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. which is up near Wilkes-Barre, Scranton. Um, and I got into marching band. And that was, you know, it kind of became my passion, drumming, and I started drumming all the time. And then in 1982, a band director by the name of Dave Cooper, who was the then band director of Nanny Coke High School, took a bunch of us to Montreal to see the Drum Corps World Championships. And that's when I saw the Santa Clara Vanguard, which was on the West Coast, and Mm -hmm. completely fell in love with the Corps and made this belligerent statement to everybody in in the stadium, to my friends, that I was going to march with the Vanguard someday and then I was going to teach the Vanguard someday. And I was in seventh grade and a horrible drummer at the time, so it was it was a comedy act at the time. But that's set that in motion. And then after I got out of school, I marched at the Crossman two years. Um, they were uh, for your listeners that don't know drum corps. They're a drum corps from at the time Philadelphia, mm-hmm. 
And um, I marched 84. We were 10th in the world. And then 85 uh, was a train wreck, and we fell out of the top 12 of the world. And then I ended up in the cadets in 86. Um, I got drafted by a drummer named Tom Angst. He showed up at my dorm room and said, come on, we're going to the camp. And the cadet staff just literally took me to their camp. And I, it was a great experience. And then 87 on out, I ended up coming out for the last two years of drum corps. And then that's when things started to change career-wise a little bit. Now, any one of those and any one of those events is a, is a story. I mean, I can imagine um, you as a young person kind of declaring that, you know, you were going to go to to Santa Clara Vanguard, which, uh, you know, I try to equate this when I talk to people who aren't in the marching arts community, you know, to baseball. So if if the you know if the cadets are the New York Yankees, you know maybe you'd say the Vanguard or Blue Devils are kind of like you know, the San Francisco giants or, or something like that. Um, and so you were, you were at Crossman 84, 85. I was there 89 to 93. So I, I always remembered hearing about you from, from people that were, you know, young when you were, you know, at Westchester at Crossman and then were the elder statesman when I got there as a rookie. So, um, so I've been, Uh-oh. you know, I've been following your career kind of in a in an odd way, and um, you know, you spent your '86 season with the Cadets, right? Just correct yeah. me on any of this. And then correct. the impetus to go to Santa Clara was what? What? Happened? Well, I was always going to Santa Clara from seventh grade on. That was the plan. I mean, I never told anybody anything different. So when I went to Cadets, you know, I was going to take the year off. And I, and, and I was drumming. In fact, I started to fail all of my classes at Westchester because I started snare drumming eight hours a day. I mean, I literally went into just, this is all I'm doing to succeed. So, yeah, I mean, it was that I was pretty much on a mission to be the best drummer I could possibly be. And then coming out to the West Coast and, and you know, making those statements like you, you referred to, hey, it's like saying you're going to coach a professional team someday. A, a lot of luck is involved. But it's also, like anything else, a lot of hard work kind of getting ready to go into that. And and from each organization you're with, you know, or each teacher you have or anything, you gain another tool kind of to move forward. And I came out to the West Coast as a drummer. I didn't, you know, I had no intention of going to law school. I had no intention of, I didn't know the first thing about movies or anything else. And um, I got out of drum corps in, um, after teaching for a few years in college, you know, and then I ended up becoming the caption head in '94 of the Santa Clara Vanguard, which was my what I said I was going to do mm-hmm. in seventh grade, and that was, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, it was a great, it was a lifetime goal, but once you accomplish that goal, then it, it's it's a weird kind of letdown or or something. You go, okay, now what? I've hit the top of this. I there's no job to go to from this, you know, for what I was interested in. So that's when I started to kind of look around and started to think about, you know, not looking as drum corps as an end, but as a means. Okay, I have this skill set. It's very unique. It's kind of odd, but how can I use it in different ways? And I moved down to L.A. in 1992 with a music degree and ended up the best opportunity I got was a $4.25 an hour job offered a shoe store. Wow. And literally, 
and ran out of money and came back to the Bay Area. And that's when I decided that I needed to do something else to get basically to have the, the, the better tool set to move forward in the entertainment industry. Because th- for me, that was the next logical step from drum corps was entertainment. And that's kind of how I chose law school. We should mention as, as we're going through sort of your backstory that you're a very multifaceted person, which I find interesting in, in this way. Um, you accomplish your drum corps aspirations as a performer and as a teacher. And then that spawns a book, right? Tale of a Drumline, which I see around, I see copies of that around from, from time to time, right? When, when did you publish that? Well, Tale of a Drumline, um, in 1993, it was towards the end of my drum corps teaching career. And, you know, 1992, I have just told you about. My life fell apart, as mm-hmm. I'm sure most people have at one point or another. You have no money and whatever. And came back to the Bay Area, and my friends who had been teaching Vanguard said, hey, come on back onto the staff. You know, we missed you in 92. All that. So I came back. Um, and the Vanguard, you know, for those of you, they were a world-class organization, and the bottom fell out. And we spent the next almost year thinking that we were on the Titanic and we were going to end out of finals. And we, it was a group of kids and people um, that worked incredibly hard for a year. And we lost one of them recently, Chris Trujillo, which was heartbreaking. Um, but at the end of that season, the Vanguard drumline, which was this ragtag group of misfits, losers, all of us, um, one field percussion at prelims would beat everybody in the world. And I think to this day, if you said, you know, what is the one moment that encapsulates what drum corps should be or is about, it's that day. You know, for me, the next day when the drumline meets under the tree and we were talking about what was really, does it really matter that you can drum faster than everybody else? Who gives a shit? You know, you can play flandrags, whatever. What really matters is that for a time in your life, you come together with a group of people and you try as hard as you possibly can. And wherever you end up, you end up. But it, but you look at one another and you go, we couldn't have tried any harder. And I think for me, that, that experience happened and that was a life game changer. So that's, you know, it, I learned a lot about heart and dedication and all that. And I took that skill set and what I've seen and what I experienced kind of into the next phase. But that's, you, you asked about the story. That's that story, that's when I started to write. I just, I had to share that experience. So I wrote this short story and it got published in Modern Drummer and then it, and then it just started to take off. And then, you know, later I ended up uh, fleshing it out um, on a trip to Japan and then had Scott Johnson write a, write a forward to it and it exists. But that's what kind of got me to start writing you know, and, and to just to start going down that path of thinking, well, you know, maybe there's other creative things I could do besides map out, uh, you know, drum orchestrations, you know, to drum corps or whatever. Do you think looking back, do you think the having that article published in Modern Drummer was, you, you know, how, you know, once you have a little bit of perspective and you can look back into the past, certain events will stand out as a determinative, you know, kind of like the proverbial fork in the road or the game changing moment for, you know, to call it by another name. Um, You know, do you think that was, that was the thing that 
ultimately put you on the path you're on now, or was there something no. after that? No. The, 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 the event that put me on the path that I'm now happened on February 15th, 1995 in Santa Clara, California. Um, after a drum corps rehearsal, making a really long story short, mm-hmm. um, I had a carjacker basically take about five or six shots at me from about 10 yards away as I was running through traffic. Wow. It made the newspapers. It, 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 it's one of those, you have one of those moments when it's over, you go, how the fuck did I just get out of that? And it became, it made the, you know, it went in the Mercury News, it became this whole big thing. But the, the long story short of when you have kind of a near death experience or scary experience, it makes you evaluate everything. And what I, that was the point in time, that was 95, when I thought, okay, I've done all this in drum corps. I've never traveled. I've never done any, you know, all these other things that there are to experience in life I hadn't done. So that day, that event, that's when I decided to change the game. And I ended up going to law school in the fall of 95, you know, right off a tour, New York, one day, boom, fly out to San Francisco and start law school. And I didn't own a computer. I didn't know how to turn on a computer. I didn't know, you know, I was so behind the game. It was ridiculous. Talk about, and talk about a culture shock. My God, being on the road to being in, you know, being in that, not just in an academic setting, but specifically in law school with that population being, being an attorney myself, I can say that, but, uh, I can't even imagine going from, from, uh, tour right to, right to school. I was wholly unprepared. And in fact, my first semester, I was told, you know, I had my writing professor who ended up becoming a friend of mine. And, you know, look, the deadline's coming up to withdraw and save your fees. There's no way you're going to make it through this. And, you know, that's when I just said, well, you know, if I can work hard enough, like I did to get to Vanguard, then I'm just going to take that same philosophy and go here. So I made my email address drumlaw80. Drummer, I was a drummer, law, I was going into law, and then the 80 stood for Jerry Rice, you know, his work ethic. I was going to outwork everybody. If I failed out, great, but no one was going to outwork me. So that's kind of the first time when I realized that you can take drum core skill set and use that. You know, it had nothing to do with flam drags or whatever, you know, drum rudiments, but it was the work ethic that I got from DCI and, and the Vanguard and the cadets that I poured into law school. And my by my second year, I had straight A's. I mean, I, it was a renaissance. It was unbelievable. I mean, I studied in Europe. It was just all of these things that I had never experienced, but I guess, you know, I do, was just hungry to, to learn. But that's kind of how that was the first shift of dra- getting shot at was the first fork in the road, simply put, I wow. guess. And um, while you were in law school to, to kind of go there for a minute or two, um, you know, when you when you get I'm sure the curriculum was was somewhat similar when you were in it. You know, I went to uh, Temple University in, in North Philly. Um, wow. you know, you've got awesome. the first couple of years, you've got some general, you know, Gen- I don't want to call them general ed, but you know there are some some courses that every lawyer has to sit through first you know year or two. Then you get into your third year where you can start exploring some academic subjects that may you know interest you, and maybe there's a career path for, you know for you. Uh, did did you start 
looking at entertainment law classes when you were in your in law school or did that materialize later? Day one, they had, I mean, I'm, I, maybe you had this experience in your academic background, but for us in day one, the torts preview special session, whatever it was, um, every student stands up and says why you're here. And, you know, now given, I've just given you the background to, you know, leading up to this, there's a lot of incentive for me to, you know, what I'm doing. And I got up and I said, I am here to be an entertainment lawyer. I'm not interested in doing anything else. I'm coming into entertainment law. Now, lo and behold, I came in very belligerent and I'm only doing this. But then it was very interesting because you're, you're forced into taking classes that in a million years you would not think about you know, antitrust or torts or, or civ pro or whatever. And then I, I began to enjoy all of these different areas, completely contrary to my expectations, right? I mean, even something with personal injury or whatever, it's like, there's fascinating aspects to all any area. I didn't find really one area of the law that, that was, you know, completely repulsive. There was a lot of exciting stuff. So, I, I really got into international law was the, the one area I really began to grow fond of. And I studied in Ireland and Prague and started making contacts all over the world. And I started to view it as a, a choice, entertainment law or international law. And it was very, very tough. I went to Prague. I interviewed. I mean, I was ready to make just go to Europe. And then ultimately, I decided that my whole life I had spent excuse me, you know, helping people achieve their dreams in entertainment. And it seems kind of silly to just walk away and go into, you know, a, a different area right now. I have to give entertainment my shot. Mm -hmm. So I got out of school and then I started taking small bands on as clients in the Bay Area. And, you know, they were, they had no record deal. It was, it was, you know, I would have made more money at Burger King, really. And, but I was doing entertainment law. And then I started doing criminal defense work you know, writing appeals, people who had been convicted of DUI or whatever, mostly low level stuff. And I really got to enjoy that, you know, because you're, you're, you're writing and you're going to court. It was kind of interesting. And I had a great uh, mentor, Josh Dale, who was teaching me about the ins and out of that. So I started to learn all these areas of law and began to really look at the law as not just, you know, here's your key to make more money or, or status or whatever other nonsense. It, it's really this amazing gift of skill set that opens not just a job door, but every door. I mean, you're meeting people from other countries, you're meeting people from other backgrounds that you, you know, it was just this amazing thing. So the, the, the odd thing, though, that at 2000, 2001, the technology, um, the dot com boom was full force. So I got out of school and recruiters started calling every lawyer they could find in the Bay Area. And I turned down the first bunch of job offers or whatever. And, uh, you know, a dot com called me and they said, look, we need you. And I said, no. And they said, how about part time? And I wasn't making a lot of money. So I said, OK. And they go, it's forty five dollars an hour, which at that time was genius. I mean, I was like, OK, I'm in. And I went and discovered technology law. And that was really the basis of how I learned how to draft contracts and in entertainment it was not in entertainment, it was through technology. Because if you've ever been in the technology world, you know, and especially in the legal and, and the biz, biz dev and, and technology, it's some of the smartest people in the world, you know, and, and the contracts and the technology go so fast, that you cannot help but get great as a lawyer going right. in, the, in that crowd. So I did that for two years until 
um, you know, the 9-11 kind of burst that dot-com bubble. And that's when things kind of changed and I went a different route from there. In in what you were just described, it sounded to me like you were a solo lawyer under your own, you know, hanging out your own shingle, for uh, lack of a better term, right out of school, which is unusual. Not not everybody does that. That's, well, that's, okay. Thank you. So when I got out of school, as I said, I started taking bands and I was a sole practitioner. And at the time, I thought that was a viable path. But in hindsight, that's absolutely ridiculous to think you can come out of law school and understand transactions without learning from somewhere because law schools aren't geared up to teach that skill set. Um, however, um, when I came into it was so important for me to develop my, my entertainment law practice. Um, every stage of the game at the technology company and then at every law firm I worked at after that, um, I always contractually retained the right to bring on my own clients. So I never stopped developing, with, with one or two limited exceptions, my own, you know, I've always had the site on the end game where, okay, great, I'm learning this in technology, I'm doing all these amazing things, but I still want to learn about music publishing. I still, because I knew that was the end game, was film, TV, and music, and I didn't want to just get sidetracked and then, you know, try to learn, you know, too little, too late. I wanted to be ready when the opportunity came. For those of you who are not in the legal industry, I mean, normally what happens is, um, you know, I would say, I mean, this is just anecdotal, but I would say at least 90% of, you know, my peers from my graduating class, you know, you go work for someone else's firm for a while um, before you jump out and, and go on your own. And some people do it three years out of school, some wait 10 years, everybody's a little bit different. But, you know, once in a while... Um, you know, you do run into that, that person that, you know, is, is hell bent on, you know, going out on their own immediately. And it's not, you know, it's like startup, you know, building a law practice is tough. It's not like you can build a better mousetrap and then scale it up and sell a million units. It's a totally different animal. It takes a long time to, uh, you know, to develop. Well, actually for me, um, there was no plan to go on my own. It was get out of school. I sent probably, this is no exaggeration, 2,500 resumes to LA. Mm -hmm. This is back in the day when, you know, when everything was mailed. Um, I sent my resume to every single person connected to every single entity I could find in Los Angeles to get a job and did everything. I mean, did, you know, my typical, you know, work as hard as you can and failed miserably. So, and there were no Bay Area, you know, the top law firms that did entertainment, I, which I ended up at, weren't taking, you know, didn't have any openings at the time. So the go on your own for me, it was simply like, look, I went to law school to do entertainment law, and this is what I'm going to do. It's not, I, I wasn't, I didn't come in with the attitude of, hey, I'm going to go ask permission and hope I can get into entertainment law. Because that was, a lot of people advised me, they said, hey, unless you go to, Harvard and you're really well connected and this and this they you, you will never get in forget it in the people in law school told me that and My answer was well, then that's the path. I'm going anyway, whatever I'll stand there I if I end up homeless then I'll be homeless But I'm not deviating because this was the only reason I went to this You know incurred all this debt and spent those bazillion hours to learn the skill set and uh, 
yeah, so that was kind of my path was on track since I never deviated from that. As 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 maybe not so smart as that was at different times, that was uh, pretty much a one track mission from day one. So you're in private practice. You decide uh, where where did you locate your office? Were you in Santa Clara or Silicon Valley, or were you elsewhere? I had no. My office was a diner or whatever. I mean, it literally it was. So I had a, an amazing job at technology, making a lot of money, which was cool. But my band clients, they all had day jobs anyway, so there was no need for an office. So the office would be meet for coffee. You know, it was it was lame in hindsight, but it's all I had, so it's what I did. You know, and and it was in actually it was really great. And and the funny thing was I, I don't listen to metal music a lot, but I started representing all these metal bands. And it was it was a really interesting dynamic because I, I, I learned to really appreciate the world and the culture and, and, and made some friends to this day. And um, but I didn't get very far because, it you know, the Bay Area at the time or, or still to this day was not set up necessarily. It, it's not the mecca of entertainment that L.A. was. So I came down to L.A. in 2004 to be a music lawyer. You know, that was my. My, my my main mission in life was to come down here and be a music lawyer. And I came down here, and then within, th- I think, three weeks, two weeks, um, I met a Japanese movie director who had made Junichi Suzuki, who had made uh, probably 40 feature films in Japan, something like that. Um, and my wife's Japanese, Rumiko. And we just all hit it off. And he said to me, would you you know, would you accept a position producing my first movie in, in, in LA, in Hollywood? And, you know, it wasn't a big, very big movie, very big budget movie, which was great because the, when budgets go up, people come out of nowhere and you have to fight them off. So I had this, this opportunity to produce an international horror movie and produce at the time meant for me, you know, be the lawyer, which I didn't, I didn't know anything about film really at the time. And then, Produce the movie, and which meant learn as much as you possibly could and help wherever you could. So, I, I got paid very little, you know, because it was a low budget movie, and I took all the money and I just bought books, and then I went into learn mode. And you know, I didn't have any clients or job at the time, so I just said, okay, I'm going to spend eight to twelve hours a day learning film law. And you know, it's funny because they say, all right, it's going to be a Screen Actors Guild movie. And if you know, you know, every actor in Hollywood that you know is a member of the Screen Actors Guild. Very mm-hmm. simple. Right. And maybe little community films, you know, actors, you know, their first movie, maybe they're not SAG. But this was going to be Screen Actors Guild. And they said, okay. And so I had to get the Screen Actors documents. And this was the, this was my first introduction to how crazy Hollywood can be. And they go, okay, um, this is this, the, all of these documents are controlled by the SAG, you know, that's the acronym for Screen Actors Guild, the SAG Basic Agreement. Okay, cool, Basic Agreement. Can I get a copy of the Basic Agreement? Well, I got a copy of the Basic Agreement, and it was 800 pages long. So that was when I was like, I, I, I could not believe that there's 800 pages to do anything in this world, let alone regulate how a movie is shot with the right. cast. Yeah. But I, I, I read it and went through it. And that was, you know, my, that was the first movie was called haunted highway. 
Um, it was called Death Ride, but the, the film studio in the U.S. changed the title. But that's I went to auditions. I went to shooting. I went to color correction, which is misery. Uh, I went to editing. I helped put together the soundtrack. Every And then as I started to do my first movie and, and you know, produce, and, and I use that word lightly because most of it was just learning on the fly, I started to realize that the process of making a movie – which takes approximately a year, you know, give or take, if you're not in development hell, um, is very similar to drum corps in that you put together your team, you get your script, you know, you put together your staff, then you get the members, which are the cast. And then the process takes a year, you know, as I just said, and it's very similar, you know, design wise and and timeline wise and and process wise, it's it's almost the same thing. And then when instead of going on tour, competing at DCI, you release the film and you go to festivals. And it, it was so similar, that I that's when I started to realize that, you know, I think I can do this. I think I could do all of this. I, I mean, there's so much to learn. It was like going to law school, again, you know, twice. Right. But it was a really, it, I started to realize that my drum corps background was actually an asset. And a lot of people coming in to produce have never been through anything, you know, unless they've been involved in theater or something where you have that, that process, you know, and I had been through it, you know, a bazillion times with drum corps all over the place. So that going from drum corps to law to movies and then starting to produce movies it, it sounds very odd. It sounds like someone who can't decide in their career. But for me, it was just an evolution. And I just started to look at my law degree as an arrow in the quiver, so to speak, instead of, okay, I'm a lawyer. And the the thing that, that even to this day I have to be very careful of is that there will be some movies on where, you know, or, or productions or TV show, whatever, where I am just lawyer. So that's all I do. I get the contracts, I look at the contracts, I negotiate and advise. But there are other movies where I will be the producer. And that means, you know, putting together the money, help selecting the cast, help selecting the director, whatever. And I started to get kind of sucked into this world where I realized, you know, more and more and more that I, I could I could actually maybe do this. So I I decided for me, anytime I hit a creative wall or wanted to go forward, education was the answer. So I signed up for the UCLA or I applied for the UCLA professional screenwriting program, which is a, a year of almost like kind of boot camp approach to learn how to be a screenwriter. And a lot of great Hollywood screenwriters have gone through UCLA. So I dove into that, you know, because if you're a lawyer, you can write. If you, if you can't write, you didn't make it through, you know, it's, it's pretty simple. So yep. I got that and that's where I learned how to write with structure. And then all of a sudden I, I realized I could create the blueprint for a movie, which is how I started to become a screenwriter. Yeah, I'm a little bit now you've got me a little bit uh, curious as to which, which way to go next, because I know in the, in the creative writing space, um, you know, you had, a novel, but, you know, not the tale of a drumline, but there was a, a, a novel that came after that. Okay. Uh, right. So do we, do we want to get, when in? I was at, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> You've Go got ahead. more projects than, uh, than, than we can probably get through, but you know, tell, walk me through how that related to was, was, was the novel before or after the UCLA screenwriting program? Well, here's how this, this crazy journey went. So I'm in the UCLA program. 
and I love history, you know, whatever it is. And I had just watched the DVD series World at War, just from, you know, Lawrence Olivier narrates all this great stuff. And we're in this class, you know, Monday you're in a huge auditorium with 100, 200 screenwriters, and then you go into your groups on Thursdays. But Monday night they go, all right, what is your screenplay going to be about? You know, because in the program you have to write a movie screenplay, you have to write two of them. And I was like, um, about, 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 about. Uh, and and the, one of the instructors, his name is Hal Ackerman, he, he has this snowplow technique, he calls it, where, you know what, you don't sit down, you don't think, you just write. Go. Write what your movie is about. So I just started writing, and what came out was what I had just seen, which was, you know, the Battle of Berlin. And I started writing this screenplay, um, Vampires, at, at the last day of World War II, set in Berlin. And I wrote this screenplay, and, it, you know, I had a really great screenwriting instructor and, and great team, and, and we got it done. And, you know, then I wrote another one and I got another program and then I started shopping around for a director because when you get a movie, so you have your screenplay, the next thing you need is a director, right? So I started, you know, um, I entered my screenplay in a competition at one terror film festival. I was like, wow, and everybody loved it. So I started going around trying to get a director to read, you know, attached to the project, basically. And a year or two went by. And I went to, you know, many times the Cannes Film Festival in France. And I was sitting there with a buddy of mine who had produced many movies, you know, with Sony and all kind of stuff. And I was kind of having a meltdown, honestly. I was at lunch and I was just like, you know what? This industry is fucking dumb. I hate it. I cannot get anybody to read my script. You know, I wrote a great script because they would just go, oh, World War II, period piece, been there, done that, you know, whatever. Or just if you, you know, and I hadn't really been experienced to how hard it truly is to get people to read scripts at the time. But, you know, there I was just angry because I could get great meetings, but I could not get the time of day from a director. So my friend said to me, he goes, you know what the problem is? He said, the problem is you're the director. And I looked at him like, what are you talking about? He said, you wrote, you have the music soundtrack figured out. Yes. He goes, you wrote the script. Yes. He goes, you have the vision, the visual, the, the whole thing figured out. Yeah. He goes, you're the director. And I laughed at him. I mean, he's my buddy, right? It wasn't, you know, conflict or anything. And I, yeah, great, great, great. I'll see you back in LA. So I blew him off and I went back to walk and pound on the pavement with my script and got nowhere. So then it happened two more times where people, my friends who had knew, you know, they had seen me doing all these creative projects. They said, you know, hey, you're a director. So I'm going, I'm going. And then I, you know, I go, well, no, I'm not a director. I'm going to write the novel. So I wrote the novel and I tried this route and my novel, I got it finished. And um, we had a book signing in Burbank and lightning struck entertainment weekly or us weekly i think it's one of those magazines um ranked it in the top you know five of of hardcore horror fiction all you know and it was like this big you know to do and i got a small publisher which ultimately wasn't a great idea but you know i had this this really killer vampire project that i still even the novel came out all of this stuff i still couldn't get a director so that's kind of when you know um the the career took another change you know meanwhile i'm producing all these films and we're starting to do international projects and all this stuff but then there's this side category where it's me you know and i'm like well this vampire film is 
the minimum budget I can possibly imagine is millions of dollars, right? Five to 10. So, because it's a war movie. So, and I concluded that no one in their right mind is going to, and, and no one sane is going to give a first time director that much money to go make their first movie, right? It just doesn't happen unless somebody, the parties are truly insane and they're going to lose their money. So, then I said, okay, well, what is my skill set? I know music. I know drum corps. I know how to do this. I know how to write. So I found this uh, short story called The Song, written by Patrick Christian. And the story, it's about um, the small town. They find a compact disc outside on the ground of a radio station. And they play it. And the music has the effect um, of kind of like Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It starts to take over the town. And it's really this, this driven by music. So I had been doing a lot more work with the Japanese, and I started to, I, I started to think, like, wow, what if the main character was not a CD, which is a stupid character, right? But if it was an alien with a voice. And I remember this great movie, The Fifth Element, had this crazy character, Lilu, and I started to think about that character. And then I started to develop my own character, kind of inspired by that, and named Flower. And Flower was going to be this alien that gets shot down and has a magic voice. And I wrote this screenplay for you know called Goodbye Blue Sky, right. where Flower gets shot down off the coast of San Francisco, comes on board, you know, comes ashore, and then eventually gets discovered and becomes a famous singer. And, and this whole crazy story takes off. And I started talking to you know I started working more with my drum corps friends and and started running this idea by them. And then. Um, the lead, I always wanted to be a Japanese pop star, you know, a, a Japanese singer. So I started through talent agents and casting directors, started approaching um, Japanese singers and pop stars and putting out, you know, hey, I'm looking for this character. And then I started talking to the drum corps people, to Dave Gibbs at, at the Blue Devils and saying, hey, I'm putting this project together. And the last scene is in a dance club and I want to have 30 live drummers and I want to have color guard in the audience. I want to approach it like a WGI show basically that last 15 minute music battle and they got behind it and that that's kind of where it went and then the 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 long story short um we found a pop star named shizuka in japan she's a member of this this super group called the Mm e-girls and you know two years ago um like a year and a half ago i guess that she had a four-day window open up on her tour uh, right after New Year's. And the Japanese executive said to me, hey, if you want to shoot something, we have four days open right after New Year's 2015. And we can do a short film. And I was, you know, it's kind of like when somebody says, hey, do you want to produce your movie? You know, when I got asked that, I, my first reaction was no. And my wife was like, well, why are you here? You know, accept the challenge. So that's just, you know, I, I think that's when, when you have an opportunity, you just go. So I, I watched every movie that ever won the Cannes Film Festival, the short films, and I tried to learn what a short film was. And then I got my buddy and we wrote one. And we, I called the Blue Devils and, and we just started putting the pieces together. And in January, uh, right after New Year's, in January last year, we shot... Uh, you know, as my debut as a director with a Japanese pop star and Blue Devils color guard and, and Hollywood cast, uh, we shot Red Skies at Night, which is my debut short film, 
which right. just is finished and is now we've just entered film festivals all over the world. So process that takes several months. So Red Skies at Night relates to Goodbye Blue Sky in what way? Not necessarily a prequel or is it a distillation of the longer story or what? what's the relationship between the two projects? Okay. Well, Goodbye Blue Sky, um, the, the main character's Flower, and the whole premise behind that, you know, as I just said, is she joins a rock band and, and the, it's really the underlying um, moral of the story for Goodbye Blue Sky is really about how horrible the music industry is, you know, because they eventually discover that her music is hurting the kids and they don't care because it's a hit. And it's really becomes this, you know, flower in it's it's set in San Francisco, you know, hate Ashbury, you know, present day, though, kind of a, a neo San Francisco. And but Red Skies at Night, um, there is no when I said, okay, it's a prequel. For me, it's really about proof of concept that in, in several aspects, A is it's a self-contained story. It's about reality television, right? You know, Flower, this little girl is, is wandering around, you know, during her day in, in Malibu, and she finds this dying alien who got shot down. She's on the cliff. Little girl brings her home. And her home is a reality television set. Her dad's a producer. So basically, the, the story is, you know, the, this it's it's about reality television, but it's really about all of the things that are going on in the world now, you know, the, the migration into Europe and, and, and Syria and all of these things where we have all of these cultures coming in the clash. And, you know, I, I don't want to give away the movie because, you know, we just produced it. But it, it, it's really about, you know, the theme is we are all the same. And it's really a, a, a very powerful statement about, you know, the state of the world today and how we're not different, regardless of what's going on. And that's why, you know, film festival wise, we've entered festivals in the Ukraine and Russia and Madrid and, Bar you know, everywhere you can think of throughout Europe and the world, Asia, Europe, whatever, we've entered film festivals. And if it, it wherever it premieres, wherever it goes, if, if it does, that's that's where we go, because it's, it's a message to the world. And I think we had total... Um, I'd have to add it up, but eight or nine different countries involved, whether it was, you know, some financing or, or cast or crew, it, it really was the United Nations. It was really an awesome, awesome experience making that short film. Stressful, most stressful thing, I think it almost killed me. But at, at the end of the day, it's really uh, great to have done that, gone through that experience. Even as a lawyer, you learn so much, you know, just the practical reality of what happens to contracts on the ground. You know, you're not just sitting in the office, you're on the set watching somebody stress about a publicity rights provision. That's kind of interesting. Well, so. what now, how can people, so how will people be able to see Red Skies at Night? How, how can we help spread the word about that project? Um, yeah, thank you for asking. So we have, um, right now, we have a, a teaser that's on YouTube. You know, it's the, the official teaser for Red Skies at Night. We have a Facebook page, which is where we're going to have, I think it's Red Skies at Night movie. Um, on, it's on Facebook, where we're going to have all the release information. So the process right now, so I made a short film. So I have right now, um, my career, it, it's kind of, it's almost comical to explain. So I have the producer part of me which is, you know, I'm helping, working on a bunch of international movies where we put together, you know, where, but I'm not a director. I'm not necessarily the writer. 
I have the lawyer part, you know, as I said before, film, TV, music, but then I also have this director part. And then Red Skies, the process is um, we're sending it out to film festivals, as I said, all over the world. Um, we're going to release a trailer in the next month or so, which is a little bit more of the story, you know, and we're just ramping up the press now. Um, wherever it gets in at a festival, which hopefully it does, I mean, as a filmmaker, you never know. And in short films, they're easier to make, so there's a bazillion entered into every festival. But basically, once that happens, I'm going to set the release date. I'm planning to release it this year, but I'm in discussions right now um, with a, an anime. Well, I won't get into it, but basically, we're talking about a small theatrical release in Japan and the US before we put it out on digital BOD. So the plans are still in the air. We don't actually have a release date yet because, you know, like I said, in the, in the film world, you really want to get a sense of where it's going to be popular, how it's going to go and, and get some of those, um, you know, the, the, the leafs or whatever you want to call them for the film festivals, if you can attach to your project. Cause the, the name of the game for a short film, it's really a business card. You know, it's to say, hey, I can direct, I can write, here's what's going on. But the, the interesting thing is the, the paradigm has kind of shifted because we have a, you know, if you have a short film with a celebrity in it, and we have a couple or, or, or well-known actors, I guess, um, you know, I, the way that the VOD, and digital, which is video on demand and digital market is changing, I think you, you actually might be able to make some revenue or at least make your money back with a short film. I think that... The, the model's changing a little bit now. Well, what we'll do on the podcast's website is you'll have... So this episode with Lee, it'll have its own page when you go to creativeconfidential.net and click on the episodes tab. Lee's, Lee's episode page will be up and we'll embed the YouTube trailer right in the page so that when people... Uh, go to the go to our website they can see your bio and they can actually view the trailer right there and then we'll we'll also link to the facebook page and if you all can uh, like uh, red skies at night facebook page then that way the information will get pushed to you on uh on facebook um we ha i have the feeling lee we have barely scratched the surface because there's a, a lot of other subjects in terms of you know, film financing and sort of the inside baseball part of the film industry that I'd love to talk to you about. If we could come back and do a, a second half of this sometime in the near future, that would be uh, terrific. Yeah. And, and thank you for shouting out the Facebook page. If anybody likes that, I would, that would be genius. <laughs> well, we and um, no, I would be happy to come back. You know, it, it is, like I said, I work in so many different spaces and with different countries now and everything. It, it it's There's multitudes of topics, you know, and I, the one cool thing is I actually teach law school now. So what I've done is I've kind of systematized um, how do you, it's almost like my, my class should be called, you know, how to use your law degree to work in entertainment or produce a movie. Because I, I really like, I, I'm a big advocate of using a law degree as a tool and not so much as a resume, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. It does. Yeah. Because there's so many things you can do with it in your life. Well, sir, man of many hats. Uh, I, I really, uh, I seriously, like you, you, when we get to the front part of, of introducing the guest, you know, usually there's one or two things that people are known for, but uh, we'll have to figure out what to, uh, how to, how to present this, uh, this episode. So, 
Um, Lee, thanks so much, and I'll we'll be in contact with you soon to to schedule the the part two uh, of this. And uh, you know, again, it's uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Hopefully, I didn't ramble too much, but I really appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> it's all good. All right, thanks, Lee. All right, seven. Take care. Thanks for listening to Creative Confidential with Brian Tuck. To have Brian consult for your arts organization or public speaking engagements, or if you have legal matters you want to discuss, contact him at tucklaw.com. That's T-U-K-Law.com. For future episodes, please subscribe to Creative Confidential on iTunes or visit us at creativeconfidential.net. This has been a Steve Mittman social media creation. Creation. Steve Mittman, socialmedia.com.